Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I am ready for you to tell me another part of the same story. Dude, I know. It's been going on for like <laughs> centuries. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let Me Tell You a Story. Finally back here to finish up our Chicago outfit. God, it's been a long time. I know. I am aware. Why I was apologize. it such a long time? Dude, there were so many different things. You were sick. Then you were sick again. Yeah, but aside from being sick and then sick again, I, you went somewhere too, didn't you? Greece. I can't even uh, yes. I can't, honestly, I cannot Oof. keep track. Yeah, that was rough. That was rough. All night. Yes. So that was that whole week pretty much. Yeah. And then the following week was like recuperating from that and catching up with all the other things that we didn't do. And then I got a disease. You got a diagnosis. Yeah, I got a diagnosis. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> you, can tell, you can tell everyone. <laughs> don't, don't freak everybody out. I'm fine. I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, which doesn't seem to be affecting me too much other than my Raynaud's, which just means my fingers turn colors when I'm stressed or cold. So. It's other people's responsibilities to keep me warm it's and not It's your responsibility to buy some gloves, which I've been telling you since January. I bought gloves. I bought gloves in bed. Wear them to bed. I'm not going to wear gloves That's to bed. That's when your Renard's kicks in in the morning. So My Renard's kicks in in the morning because it's gloves. cold in the morning. Wear gloves. No. When it's like summertime, get out of I'll bed, be fine. Put the gloves on. Oh my gosh. It doesn't bother mittens. me. It's fine. It's just annoying and it looks weird. But other than that, I'm not wearing <laughs> mittens to freaking bed. It'll stop you from scratching yourself in your sleep as I don't well. scratch myself in my sleep. What the hell are you talking about? And then I just got a stupid cold. And now here we are. And I also lost my voice for like five days. Uh, I cannot. Anyways. We're here, we're healthy for the most part, minus my disease, and uh, we're ready to go. I'm great. I Yeah, you're always great. <laughs> it's so annoying. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me tell you a story about Scarface, babe. Yeah. Are you excited? Yes. When Johnny the Fox Turio left Chicago following the assassination attempt on his life, if you'll remember, that's where we left off. He left his criminal empire to his right hand, Alphonse Capone. Remind, remind me of who Johnny the Fox is again. He was like the mentor who Is he the guy Al from New York? Yes. Yes. He, he brought Capone to Chicago once he, remember? Right, yeah. right, right. He, Capone was a bartender at his bar. He yes, yes. Right, right, with right. the other guy, Got Frankie it. Yale, remember? Oh, I love Frankie Yale. Yeah. Torrio and Yale both co-owned a bar back in New York. Torrio came under Col Colosimo, Colosimo's whatever empire. Then once Colosimo died, Torrio became the big the big boss and Alphonse was his right hand second in command the underboss but then Torrio and Capone had a bunch of people try to kill them Torrio almost died remember he was like ambushed outside his apartment mm. and then after that he was like uh, Fuck I, yeah he was like I can't do this shit anymore <laughs> so he left he went to Italy went to a couple other places he just I think like that was probably very common a lot of them had to like dip out of town because Eventually, you would be killed. 
Now, you might think that any 26-year-old that inherits Chicago's most notorious criminal empire probably has their work cut out for them, especially when that empire runs brothels, clubs, gambling establishments like racetracks and many an underground casino. Plus, you got restaurants, bars, and speakeasies because prohibition, and of course, breweries and distilleries because prohibition. But Al Capone wasn't just any 26-year-old. And so he took over with incredibly, arguably alarming ease. He didn't do it very quietly either. So Capone relished in the perks of being a very rich gangster, such as his first boss, Big Jim Colosimo, had before Torrio and Capone allegedly, probably, had him knocked off. Capone rocked the colorful suits, the diamonds, and of course the white fedora, and he was large and in charge wherever he went, becoming nothing short of a local celebrity. He was beloved, though, because he represented so much power but also grace. He mastered the concept of putting on a masterful front, and that only made him more popular with Chicagoans. Despite the fact that he had a growing he had a growing spotty reputation, to put it lightly, of course, and his long rap sheet dated way back before he ever stepped foot in the shy. Born in Brooklyn to immigrant parents, Capone chose the path of most resistance, no matter how hard his parents tried to keep him and his eight siblings Oof. on the straight and narrow. Oof is right. They were a normal, by all accounts, working family. His dad was a barber, and his mom stayed home, obviously, to care for their enormous family. It was pretty common for kids of immigrants at this time to drop out of school earlier than the norm, so to speak, so just so, that, just so they could help contribute financially. But a couple reports state that Capone leaving school at just 14 years old was actually following an incident in which he clocked his teacher. I mean, I could see it. Yeah. And I did read it multiple places. There was a couple people that were like, a lot of immigrant families. I was like, no, I totally believe the punching in the face story. I feel like also just at that time, there were no like youth labor laws. And like, so kids could be put into work to make money when they were like 12. No, totally. In New York, it was a lot of immigrants. You had Italian immigrants, you had Jewish immigrants, and they were definitely marginalized. They probably did have to have their kids working early just to stay afloat, especially when you got eight, nine children total. He's one of nine. Yeah. That's insane. Catholics. Yeah. Can you imagine, though? Can you imagine nine Harrisons? No. We would look like shit. (laughs) I don't know, though, because you just let them fight each other, you know? Yeah, and I guess they always keep each other occupied. And I guess if they're keeping each other company, that's like a lot off of our plates. Yeah, I think it's more like the finances of housing and feeding 10 people. Yeah, and then like one of them wants to do gymnastics, one of them wants to play football, no, one you're of like, them wants no, to swim. No, 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 you're, like, you're like, all of that. you. You're all going to go to work in the factory, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so Capone took on a number of random jobs after dropping out of school. He worked at a candy store, then at a bowling alley as a pin boy. This was before they yeah. had the automatic re-racks, yeah. right? I, you had to re-rack the pins for all the rich Bowlers. I don't even know what I was listening to, but they were talking about someone who used to be a pin boy. I've never heard of that job, but I guess it like totally makes sense. Yeah, they didn't have the the robot, the machine. I guess I always just assumed that bowling was a more modern thing, like bowling alleys. No, it's so retro. Think, yeah, but think like fifties, sixties, not like no, nineteen but, early nineteen hundreds. Yeah. You've seen There Will Be Blood, right? No. Oh, we should watch it. 
Okay. After we get through this 20-page story. <laughs> so besides working at a bowling alley as a pin boy, he also worked at a book bindery as a cutter, cutting... Pages? Pages. Amongst a few other old-timey posts. And when he wasn't working, he was hanging out with the South Brooklyn Rippers, a gang of punk-ass kids who ran amok, engaging in petty crimes along the way, mostly stealing cigarettes and probably other really annoying shit that only that's teenagers do. He'd later join the Five Points gang, where he'd serve an aspiring mobster named Francesco Aiole, or as we know him, Frankie Yale. And we also know that it was Frankie's saloon, the Harvard Inn, which he had initially co-owned with Johnny Torrio, like we talked about. <laughs> I'm sorry, Frankie Yale. I know, the Harvard owns Inn. the Harvard Inn. I know. Um, and that would serve as Capone's place of employment before he left New York for good. It's unknown whether the gang led to the job or the other way around, however, because Capone made such a good bartender at the Harvard Inn because the place was shady as hell. And a lot of scraps turned into full-blown fights. And then more than a few cases, they would end up in literal murder. And Capone was really slick in those situations. So it would make sense for Yale to see Capone's street sense and his capabilities as a, as a bartender or just an employee and then find him a good fit for his gang as well, you know? This kid's got moxie, see? Yeah, and there was a lot of there was a <laughs> lot of reports like that where it was like Capone was just he had such a swagger about him, you know, and he was just he was full of himself. No way. Yeah. Al Capone? Yeah. <laughs> um, but Capone also caused a lot of shit all on his own at the saloon. According to multiple multiple reports, it was while working at the Harvard Inn that Capone made a fateful decision that would, in one very notorious way, change his life forever. I need to sip my wine here. <laughs> this is a good spot to sip a wine. One afternoon, a group of three, two girls and a guy, came into the saloon to escape a roaring New York heat wave. There was a bunch of reports that said that they showed up before they had technically opened, so Capone was already annoying, annoyed by them, you know? They were like, it's just hot, let us in. <laughs> Is that a quote? <laughs> no, not a direct quote. One of the lady patrons, a young woman named Lena, or Lena, I'm assuming it's Lena, quickly caught Capone's attention. He sauntered over to the trio after he noticed the gentleman in the group, Frank Galluccio, was drunk and getting drunker. And even if he was fully sober, Capone didn't view the skinny, barely 5'6 neighborhood punk as any real threat to him. Capone was just shy of six feet, and he was a very beefy 18-year-old at this time. Approaching their table, Capone spit his best game at Lena, and he was promptly shut down. In fact, one article states that she was so put off, she literally didn't even respond to him. <laughs> she would not even make eye contact. Damn, it's cold. Now, reports vary on how Capone handled this level of rejection, but all of them agreed that he was not in any way deterred by it, even though one of his employees stepped in to inform him that Lena was Frank Galluccio, the drunk guy's sister. So they're like, dude, watch out, okay? That is Galluccio's sister, and you're being very, very forward. And Capone was like, eh, whatever. According to the archives, Capone went right up back to the group with eyes only on Lena and asked her to join him for a quick stroll along the beach. Aww. And he was again shot down. 
Another report said that Capone had the band play a love song and he stood there in front of everybody mouthing the lyrics at her. Just like straight face mouthing the lyrics at her. Shot down again. Also baller though. And also a little bit cringe. All the while, Frank was getting more and more fed up with the situation. And remember, he's also getting more and more drunk. Seeing that Capone had no intention on giving up on her, Lena told her brother that she'd had enough of Capone's harassment, and so Frank told the girls that they could leave and just to wait outside for him. As they headed for the door, Capone tried one last time to get Lena's attention, this time calling out her lovely ass. (laughs) Though one report did say that he clarified his crude comment telling Lena, That's a compliment! Wasn't received very well, though, as you can imagine, especially by Frank Galluccio, who saw this exchange and demanded Capone apologize to his sister immediately. Capone was like, hey, it was a joke, kid, relax. Not a direct quote. Frank then retreated before, calling Capone over to where he now stood, and again, reports vary here. Some say he pretended like he simply intended to have a chat man-to-man. Others say he started throwing hands as soon as Capone was in striking distance. When I was reading about this, I was thought about that kid who sucker punched you. And no, <laughs> fucking Neil Dixon. <laughs> Pretending like he wanted to shake your hand. Yeah, what an asshole. And then sucker punched you. I was like, oh, this is Frank Galuccio is <laughs> Dandroff Dixon. <laughs> uh, anyways. Either way, Capone ended up on the ground, and then the two began to fight. And it was then that Galluccio pulled his pocket knife and lunged toward Capone's jugular. Though Galluccio was extremely quick on his tiny feet, Capone was able to react just in time to save his throat from being slashed. But he wouldn't make it out of the attack without some serious battle wounds. Frank Galluccio managed to slash the hell out of Capone's face. And then after he saw what he had done... He booked it the hell out of there. Capone landed on the floor of the saloon, bleeding, bleeding profusely. His coworkers rushed to stop the bleeding, and then they took him to the hospital, where he received 80 stitches Ooh. along his jawline and his cheek. But the damage had been done. His face would bear the markings of that fight for the rest of his life. As for Galuccio, reports state that he went on with as usual as he could after the brawl, but probably in a more sober state, realized he'd gone after the wrong guy. Capone was Frankie Yale's kid, and Frank Galuccio was, therefore, screwed. His fears were realized when he noticed that his so-called friends suddenly all had plans already when he kept asking them to hang out (laughs) in the days following the bar fight. And he's like, all right, you guys, what's the big idea? And they're like, dude, you're a dead man. And he's like, well, shit. His fears were even more realized when Frankie Yale invited Galuccio over to the bar for a chat. And this is the type of invite where... It doesn't really matter if you want to go, like you're going, you know? And he's like, Capone's coming too, and we're sorting this mess out. And I'm sure Frank said his goodbyes to all his friends and family before heading over to the Harvard Inn where Yale sat both men down and forced Galuccio to look at his handiwork on Capone's face. Galuccio, fully expecting to be blown to bits at any second, began pleading his case as if on trial and being questioned by the prosecution. He laid out all the facts and the disrespect for his sister and that he was only acting out of love for his blood. And Yale was like, oh my God, shut up. I'm not going to kill you, dude. Not a direct quote. Instead, Yale charged Galuccio 1500 bucks to be paid immediately to Capone in damages. In exchange, Capone won't be allowed to kill him. 
It's <laughs> a good deal. Capone was like, yeah, all right, I like money, fine. But, of course, Gallucci didn't have 1500 bucks as a neighborhood kid. Yellow was like, hey, you know what? No problem. I'll lend you the money, solidifying the deal between mm. the two kids and sparing Fl- Frank's life, really. But more importantly, indebting Galluccio to Yale. FYI, $1,500 is like $30,000 today. So it's not exactly pocket money that Yale loaned him. But what choice did he really have? The plan was clearly well thought out before Galluccio ever walked in that day for his sit-down. That's real mob shit right there, where they're like, you know what, we'll front you the money, but we know you're never going to be able to pay this off, so now we own you. Yeah. But you have to do this deal with us, because otherwise, I'll kill we'll you. just you'll just die. <laughs> yeah. Now, the scars were a serious source of shame for Capone, who adopted a far more noble story rather than them being the result of a bar scrap between him and a tiny kid whose sister he hit on. Instead, he told anyone who inquired that they were actual battle wounds from World War One. <laughs> oh, my God. This guy. I know. I'm dead serious, too. But that was only when he was forced to speak about it because he tried incredibly hard to avoid any mention of his scars whatsoever. No joke. He hated anybody talking about his face. And looking back, a lot of historians believe that he was incredibly insecure. So his his reluctance to show the world his scars was because he was horrified about looking less than in any way. And obviously, probably the story that went along with it, like some other person did that to him, you know, kind of ruins the reputation. That's why there's so many pictures of Capone from one side. It makes him look more scary. But in reality, he was really just trying to hide his scars from the press. Um, And he'd get really legitimately pissed, too, if anybody did manage to capture them on camera. So you can imagine that he was absolutely livid that his later celebrity in Chicago inspired the press to bestow upon him a nickname to match his rising star and seedy background. That moniker, of course, is Scarface. I mean, it's it's right there. Yeah, but it's really just like salt in the wounds for someone who's horribly mortified by the scars well, on their face. It's better than like being the other guy and they're like, oh, the new gangster, short ass. You know? <laughs> but it's so on the nose. Yeah, but Scarface is scary. They're like, oh, you you hear about that new gangster? He's got scars on his face. It's like, oh, yeah, that Scarface, Scarface guy. At least that's scary rather than like tiny feet. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> it's true. It is scary. It actually is really scary. Right. And of course, then you can also imagine that he loathed the fact that the nickname stuck like it just became who he was his nefarious acts became well documented in the chicago tribune starting with the car crash in 1922 in which he was identified as a brothel owner apprehended for driving while intoxicated and declared to his arresting officer quote i'll fix this thing so easy you won't know how it's done end quote the that cop was, was quote. It's pretty sick. <laughs> yeah, but the cop was probably like, um, okay. <laughs> Again, all the confidence in the world. All right, so now we're back to the mid-1920s in Chicago. Following, Tur- following Torrio's departure, Capone ruled the shy shortly before growing in status across the entire country. He became the gangster in America because, of course, he was hard as hell. But the media and community that helped grow his celebrity, let's be real, also were not dumb. They knew exactly what was going on. Gangsters were being killed so often in Chicago, it was basically impossible to not see these murders for exactly what they were. The result of soaring tensions between rival gangs in the city. One of those gangs being, of course, Capone's Chicago outfit. But as far as rivalries go, the war between the Northsiders and the Southsiders were as ruthless as it got. They took each other out like it was no big deal. It was like daily at one point. And of course, because the Northsiders had literally almost killed Torrio, Capone had been trying to wipe them out 
just in in um, retaliation, really, ever since. But also remember, the hit against Toria was in response to the Southsiders' initial hit against their former leader, O'Banion. Remember who died in his quote-unquote flower shop, which I'm sure really was a flower shop, but also a front for the gang? Anyway, the Northsiders knew that the only way to beat Capone and his entire outfit was to kill Capone. Yeah. On September 26, 1926, Capone would have yet another near-death experience. Capone was at the Hawthorne Hotel with his entourage enjoying a lovely little leisurely lunch when a motorcade of no less than 10 vehicles rolled up and armed with submachine guns and (laughs) shotguns. The Northsiders, at this time led by Humey Weiss and Bugs Moran, unloaded their weapons through the glass at uh, at the restaurant and into, like, All of these patrons, all willy-nilly. At the first sound of gunfire, as any good bodyguard would, Capone was thrown to the floor by his and covered, while the restaurant was blown to pieces. While Capone survived the attack unscathed, many bystanders were seriously injured by flying glass and shrapnel from the bullets that had riddled the establishment. One woman who was with her son even faced potential blindness from her injuries, but Capone paid money up the ass to save her eyesight. Because you got to take care of your community, especially when it's your shit putting others at serious risk. Plus, maintaining the image of a man looking out for his community was very important to Capone. He had many a politician and city official on his payroll to help him sustain that image, too. But any attempt on your life is terrifying regardless, and Capone was shaken up by an attack of this magnitude. So he called for a truce. And the Northsiders were like, get out of here, bro. No chance. (laughs) We're not trucing with you. We're going to kill you. Also, I should mention that Capone was married with a young child as he dealt with these assassination attempts, by the way. And, and like, there were multiple attempts. Now, he was actually married years before he moved to the Shy, and his kid came before then, too. So he chose to enter this life knowing full well he had a whole-ass family at home. He had a calling. You know, he, he knew what he wanted to do for a career. Yeah. And he's a family man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can do both. Sure. <laughs> So it was clear to him that he was going to need even more protection. Clearly, it wasn't going to get any easier for him. And with the Northsiders fully unwilling to make nice, Capone decided that it was up to him and him alone to protect his life. So he souped up his Cadillac with bulletproof glass, armored plating, run-flat tires. Hell yeah. And he even got a police siren for his whip, too, just for good measure. (laughs) Just because it's badass. Yeah. His car was so safe, in fact, that when it was eventually seized in the 30s by the feds, the government found it a good fit for one of their own, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who used it literally as his presidential limousine. Because that's it was tight. that safe. I know. And there were a couple stories that say that that's false. But then there were a bunch of other stories that say, like, the FBI wouldn't confirm, which is why they can't say it's a true story. But, like, they would never confirm that because it doesn't look good that the president was using a gangster's vehicle. But I could totally see that because there's no way the Fed sees that and then threw it out. That nice-ass, safe-ass Cadillac, bulletproof, armored plating, run-flat tires. Are you kidding? Somebody took that home. Did the government not have bulletproof cattle? I'm sure they did, but nothing was as safe as his. Like, his was way safer. 
Cabone had way more I money than the like government. Way nicer looking. Yeah, I with bet like it was. better leather and interior. it probably had like I was gonna say it probably had like <laughs> lights on inside and all it's kinds of stuff. It's the siren, dude. They wanted the siren. <laughs> like, damn. <laughs> Roosevelt's like, hit the siren. Yeah, Roosevelt's like, wait, he's got a siren on his. I don't have a siren on mine. <laughs> um, so obviously, clearly, Capone knew what he was doing. Aside from the death-proof caddy, he also had armed bodyguards standing by all around the city. And especially around his headquarters at the Lexington Hotel. They stood guard around the clock, ensuring his safety throughout the shy. And when he needed to get away, he had plenty of hideouts, too, all over the place. Indiana, Wisconsin, Tennessee, New York, Michigan, Iowa, Minnesota, and Arkansas. And I'm sure that's not all of them. Half of those places I don't ever want to go to. But that's why. Yeah, that's true. That's not... (laughs) He's like, where does nobody go? <laughs> I forget Honestly, Arkansas as a place. No offense. Capone's entourage were known to be were known to spontaneously book out entire sleeper cars too and hide out at luxury hotels under assumed names with the help of local authorities because mob shit. This was the life of a mobster at this time. For Capone, no day was guaranteed, but he did a damn good job of upping his chances of avoiding a bullet to his head. It's just weird because I guess it was expected at that point, you know, like when we watched, was it Goodfellas or Casino? When Joe Pesci dies when he thinks he's getting made and they trick him. Yeah. And his reaction right before he gets shot, he's like, oh, like, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, there's no fear. It's just like, oh, shit. Like, oh, great. You know? So I just wonder if, yeah, you can do everything you can, but there must have just been some level of expectation where it's like, you know, at any second you could get your head blown off. I'd, yeah, I don't think I'd deal with that stress very well. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Like, maybe the level of stress just wasn't there. Well, I also think back in ye olden days, I don't know, this probably isn't even ye olden days, but back in old, old times, people were dying all the time. That's true. People die from, I don't know, polio. You know? Yeah, that's true. So it's like, I think the idea of living to your 100 was like, Unheard that's of. fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Capone would seemingly solidify his ability to take care of business when Jaime Weiss, one of the Northside leaders, was gunned down as he crossed the street towards his HQ, Schofield's flower shop. Again, the same flower shop where Dion O'Banion had been gunned down by the Southsiders pretending to be shopping for flowers. Okay? People love shooting people at that flower shop. Is it Schofield or Schofield? Might be Schofield. By 1927, Chicago had pretty much come to be known as one of, if not the most dangerous of cities in the world. And no surprise, this lined up with Capone's rule in the shy. He was ruthless. And truly, what he wanted was full control. He wanted to be at the top of the bootlegging racket. And he didn't have time for any other gang members running their own bootlegging deals in his city. Even if he was already reportedly raking in $100 million a year. But nope, not good enough for him. He had so much money, there's no way it was about money at this point. He just wanted to be at the top. The idea of other mobsters also having their own bootlegging rackets, he was like, I can't have that. It's crazy. Also, don't you think it's kind of crazy to think that you can somehow take out all the other mobsters and then just have your outfit run the entire city? That's not a crazy idea. He's so successful, and his whole mentality is like, I will go further than anyone else to get to where I want to be. Right. What's crazy to me is like, I guess, you know, when you said it's not about the money, it's like, then what is it? Power. 
Yeah, but then like, you know, he must know at some point someone's going to stop me. It seems like delusion. Yeah. It's like Donald Trump level of confidence where you're just like a sociopath. And also you're never wrong. And also nobody else can beat you. But even though Capone seemed untouchable by the rival Northsiders, the feds would soon get involved when Capone finally took his violence to an all-new low in the winter of 1929. The North Side was now run solely by Bugs Moran after Weiss's death, and Capone knew that if he was ever going to truly rule the city, Moran needed to go. But first, he had a couple of loose ends to tie up. Capone had allegedly gotten word that yet another gang member was hijacking his liquor shipments because, let's be real, all of the gangs were hijacking the rival gang's liquor shipments. But this one may come as a surprise because this time the man behind the hijacking was none other than Frankie Yale, Capone's first ever allegedly mentor. Yale had actually been supplying the majority of Capone's whiskey, overseeing deliveries in Brooklyn and then transporting them to Chicago to Capone. It was Yale's job to make sure the whiskey made it safely through through New York before being shipped west. But suddenly, Capone started noticing that he was getting less and less whiskey deliveries. Yale was like, I don't know, guess someone's been stealing it. Not a direct quote. And Capone was like, yeah, guess so. So yeah, he obviously... Sorry, hold on. Is what? this the dialogue you wrote? Yeah. It's really like... <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. I was going to write some long-ass, like, novel. Yeah, guess that. So. Well, I just trying to show that he's like, yeah, okay, you know? <laughs> what do you mean? Yell's like, I don't know, guess someone's stealing it. That's and Capone's okay. like, yeah, guess so. Like, he's not calling him out directly, no, you don't but have he's to, on You to don't me. have to explain he's it. He's on to me. It's that's, just not very good that's dialogue. That's what I meant by that dialogue. Maybe you didn't get it. <laughs> no, I got it. Um, he did not buy it, is what I meant. Okay. Oh, God. So Gabon had one of his men, James Filesy D'Amato, keep an eye out. Also, what's Filesy? F-I-L-E-S-Y. Hey, he's got all the files. Yeah, I was like, literally, I was like, does he keep a lot of files? <laughs> and soon enough, Filesy D'Amato was like, hey, boss, Yale's stealing your booze. Gabon was like, yep, I knew it. So just keep watching him for me, okay? D'Amato did just that, but he was caught in the act. Not a good spy, obviously. So he did the only thing he knew how to do. File. (laughs) Fire. He started shooting, but he missed, and Yale's life was spared. For now. Within a week, D'Amato was shot dead in Brooklyn. Safe to say it was payback for his failed attempt on Yale's life. Capone was not happy that this was Frankie Yale we're talking about, okay? And because it was Frankie Yale, he also wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. The two went way back, and surely their friendship could withstand a murder or two, you know? So Capone invited Yale to Chicago to watch a game with him at Soldier Field. And everything was civil enough until Yale returned to New York, and Capone just didn't feel like Yale was doing his part in their friendship. So he got to work. On July 1st, 1928, Yale received a phone call while he was hanging out at his Sunrise Club on 14th Avenue and 65th Street. The caller said Yale had to get home quick. His new wife, Lucy, was at home with his one-year-old daughter and something was wrong with the kid. Yale was like, oh shit, not the baby. So he ran out to his car, a brand new Lincoln Coupe in the shade. Wait, oh, in the shade, coffee. Isn't that nice? Yeah, that's nice. Uh Uh-huh. I added that detail in specifically for you. And then he headed home. 
Also, it's so rude to trick someone with a sick baby excuse. <laughs> it's so messed up. Dude, these guys don't give a fuck. Yeah. Anyway, while Yale was racing home, a Buick sedan pulled up alongside him before both cars were stopped at a red light. Four armed men inside the Buick started shooting at Yale. Yale's car was obviously bulletproof, except for the windows, which turned out to be a dealer error. <laughs> God damn it. What was it, a Buick? No, his was a Lincoln Coupe, which ah. was bulletproof, but the dealer forgot to yeah. install the bulletproof glass. Can't trust those Lincolns. Now, just then, Yale was saved by the green light, and so he took off. Also, why would you wait at the red light? <laughs> you know, Maybe there was a bunch of cars. I don't know. But the Buick closed in on him shortly thereafter, and the men were able to shoot Yale now at close range. He was struck in his head with one bullet Oof. slicing straight through his brain. Yale was killed instantly, and it's believed the gunmen were Capone's men, of course. When questioned, Capone claimed ignorance. But one of the guns used to kill Yale would soon be linked to Capone's most violent hit. So this is what I was talking about earlier. Because months later, Capone had put his focus back on Bugs Moran. But before we get to that, I want to quickly just talk about Yale's funeral, because it would go down as one of the most extravagant mob boss funerals of all time. Buried in evening clothes and gray suede gloves, Yale held a gold rosary as he lay in a $15,000 silver casket. Remember, this is 1928, 9, that lay atop a podium in an open hearse. Thousands of Brooklynites lined the streets to watch Yale's final ride through the city he had run for so long. 38 cars followed, carrying all the flowers, and 250 Cadillac limousines held mourners. Roses were tossed into the grave as Yale was lowered once at the gravesite, and it was quite a sight to see, especially when two women got into it, both claiming to be Yale's wife. Hell yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Anyway, incredible, uh, for lack of a better word, an incredible, for lack of a better word, funeral that has never truly been matched by any other mob boss, most historians will argue. To this day, they're like, that was it. That was the funeral. Nobody topped it. All right, so back to Capone and Bugs Moran. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1929, Moran's gang were hanging out at a garage they frequented for bootlegging businesses, as per usual, when two police officers rolled up, or at least two men in uniform rolled up, and began announcing a raid on the garage. Within minutes, six of the seven men were dead. Frank Gusenberg, one of Moran's enforcers, was the only initial survivor of the attack. Authorities would uncover the men were taken off guard by the men in uniform, but that was clearly a ruse. Though when they questioned Gusenberg about who had attacked them all, Gusenberg refused to talk. Still, after he had witnessed six people executed and had been hit himself, he would not break the unspoken mobster oath. Don't say a damn word. Gusenberg would later succumb to his injuries. Oh. The only witness to the attack became a victim without giving police anything. But it was pretty obvious to everybody in the city that the only people who could be behind this brazen attack was Capone and his lackeys. The St. Valentine's Day massacre, as it, as it would go on to be called, was so awful and so shockingly violent that it finally got people talking enough to truly inspire real change in the city and beyond. The whole country was questioning what the actual F was happening in America and why had Chicago gone completely to the mob? All eyes were on the Chicago PD, of course, who were like, oh, shit, we got to start working now. They're catching on. They looked like fools, and they were. 
They had let the gangsters get away with so much that they were no match to them anymore. They had zero power over the mob. Gangsters did not respect the authority of the police or anybody else. And they were far more powerful than any authoritative group, and they knew it. So trying to do anything to make it look like they knew how to do their jobs at least a little bit, authorities set out to make an arrest in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, fully believing that only Capone and the Chicago outfit could be responsible for murdering Capone's rivals. They set their sights on Al. But he was in Miami, airtight alibi. He had a place there that he very conveniently always just so happened to be at these days when uh, shit went down in the shy. <laughs> Still, police knew that Capone had to have ordered the hit. Still, Capone's alibi saved his ass from an arrest. And by the way, the belief was that Capone's men were ordered to take out Bugs Moran, the leader of the Northsiders, obviously that day at the garage. But the true story is Bugs was running late. He was actually about to pull up to the garage that day when he saw who he believed to be police officers walking in. And he was like, oh, shit, that's a raid, not going in there, thus sparing his own life. I also read a few reports that one of the men that day that day strongly resembled Moran, and I believe it was his brother-in-law. And Capone's men were like, there he is. Let's go. But they didn't even end up killing him. But they killed seven people within like a minute and a half or something insane. Before we talk about the fallout of the Chicago uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre, a quick side story. It was also 1929 that Capone would get his first real taste of life behind bars. He was arrested while visiting Philly for carrying an unconcealed 38 caliber revolver. And Philadelphia, unlike Chicago, did not mess around. He received the maximum sentence of one year in prison because they wanted to make an, an example out of the biggest gangster in America. But once in jail, Capone made friends real quick. His cell contained the finest furniture, beautiful rugs, tasteful paintings, a fancy radio, and he enjoyed listening to waltzes while in his cell. Um, here's a picture of his cell. I actually pulled it for you. Things are so different. Fancy rugs is one rug that looks like a bathmat. I do like this little credenza, though. That's sick. It's... How come he has two beds? Did he have a celly? No way. That's just, I think all the all the cells had two beds, but he was by himself. I mean... Is this a photo? Yes. Is it? It looks like a painting. No, it's a photo. It's on display now. It's like in a museum or something, or like the. His I mean, cell is like it's a... still clearly a jail cell. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a room. It's a jail room, stucco. This is Philadelphia with, with two paintings, one on each wall, and then on the back <laughs> where there's the only other space is a credenza. I know. With a lamp and It's a like picture. when you move into a really shitty place and you want to make it look good, so you put up any decor you have immediately, you know? I swear to God, this is a painting, though. Mm -mm. I mean, it looks like a Renaissance painting, which is kind of tight. No, it's a picture. Uh, it's not the luxurious thing I was imagining, but... Uh, this is Philadelphia in the 20s. <laughs> yeah, Can you imagine sure. what the cells look like? This is pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the credence is really nice, and the lamp is nice, too. Very old-timey. It's a Tiffany lamp. He's also got some flowers you can see poking out in the corner. I did. I was looking at it. Yeah. That's funny. Now, because this went down in May of 1929, a lot of people actually thought Capone was trying to hide from authorities following the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. But he would forever maintain that he was absolutely not hiding and had, in fact, tried to pay off so many people just to get out of prison. Over the years, 22 men would be arrested in connection with the massacre, but because this was the mob, no one would ever go to trial. 
What was worse for police was that because nobody could be brought to justice and that Capone's men had dressed as cops, a lot of people believed that the cops really were involved. Hence why the case wasn't making it in front of a judge. They're like, of course they're not taking it to to trial because the cops are in on it. And overall, Chicago looked so bad. And it was time for the city to fight back against Capone. The Chicago Crime Commission literally rang up the president of the United States of America, Herbert Hoover. Yes. And and they were like, okay, we need some help. Like, we need some help, pervert. (laughs) Pervert Hoover? (laughs) They're like, hey, perv. (laughs) Herb the perv, what's up? Um, Yeah, they're like, okay, we messed up, like, the uh, the police, we haven't been keeping an eye on them. They have completely lost the city to the mob, and now we need your help. A team of agents were put together by Prohibition agent Elliot Ness, who was tasked with leading the efforts against the outfit. You ever seen Untouchables? Well, I was going to talk about that. It's got Sean Connery in it. Mm-hmm. It's got your boy Kevin Costner in and it. I listen to a whole podcast on the Untouchables. It's a really good movie. We should watch it. Yeah, we should. I listened to a whole podcast and I it's was like, It's not like Scorsese. It's like Blockbuster, right? Like, so it's like a little cheesy. I like mob stuff. You know I do. It's good. Mm-hmm. They were called the Untouchables because no matter how hard the mob tried to get on their good side, the Untouchables would not take a bribe or a kickback or even entertain the idea of it at all. Their sole job was to take down Capone, and they were actually good at their jobs. So Elliot Ness quickly became a major thorn in Al Capone's ass. The Untouchables infiltrated Capone's liquor routes, costing him tons and tons of money, all the while gathering evidence on him and the outfit and their illegal liquor smuggling. They raided all of Capone's establishments, too, and within six months had cost him $2 million in lost income. In total, it's said that Elliot Ness and the Untouchables cost Capone about $9 million. Okay. He's making $100 million a year, is what you told me. So who gives a fuck? <laughs> they did it in six months. Okay. Like, in six months, it cost him $2 million. So if you think about it like that, that's $25 million. That's a quarter of your entire Still year. making $75 million yeah, in old-timey money. So that's like a billion gazillion dollars. Yeah, but it's still a lot of liquor. If you think about it in terms of liquor, it's a lot of liquor. I mean, I think he's probably more pissed about... The liquor. The effrontery. Mm-hmm. Like, how dare you... Touch my bottles. No one touches these bottles except for me. He's like, hey, what's the big idea? (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Makes me laugh so hard because anytime we watch a mob movie, it's so funny too, you know, because in the middle of all this hard shit, they're also like, gabagool, you know, like it's so Italian. That's the Sopranos. What? They only say gabagool in the Sopranos. I know, but when they said in the Sopranos, I was like, oh my God, there's like a, this comes from a place. It, I comes, thought this, it comes from the Sopranos. I thought we just all said that. No, and a bada bing also <laughs> yeah, from. But I just think it's so funny because it's kind of like Joe Pesci's character in Casino. Like every time he opened his mouth, it's just funny. Like just the way he delivers uh, thing, things. And also because I find Italians extremely like actually they have really good senses of humor they're funny there's like a type of brotherhood that's like really entertaining to watch you know and i believe it so much i like seeing it they like you know poke fun at each other they're always like messing with each other and i like to think about in all of this hardness that there's so much you can just hear these guys saying you know in my head i'm like they're walking in and being like hey pause off the whiskey you know I can't. I can't do accents. <laughs> I can't do accents. You know that. I can only do a South African accent because it's my own. 
<laughs> Remember that one time you had to audition as a South African and then you forgot how to do it? <laughs> yeah, so much pressure. <laughs> That's how bad you are at accents. I know. <laughs> I literally like couldn't even do the... I put like the fact that like <laughs> the fact that I have a South African accent and the American accent is taught is mind blowing. That when it put in the situation, I couldn't speak in a South African <laughs> accent out of just sheer nervousness. It's horrifying. Uh. Um. Anyways, now they were able to do this. I mean, cost them so much money, largely because they had implemented a complex and very effective wiretapping operation. Because what else? And because of all the tech involved, Elliot Ness never, ever had to come face to face with Al Capone. He worked the entire investigation against him in the shadows like a true 1930s agent. That's some Hoover shit. Hoover loved tapping. But no amount of money lost would have been worse than what Capone faced next. An indictment. Through Ness's efforts, Capone was charged after it was found out that he had racked up about 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act. But in the end, it was tax evasion that would bring him in front of a judge. It's always tax evasion, you know? I mean, that that comes from Capone. Mm -hmm. That, like, the whole thing was they couldn't pin him. They couldn't pin any crime on him at all. Right, because he always had, like, he always had alibis and all this stuff. But they were like, what, what, how are we going to get him? How are we going to do this? Yeah. Al Capone's legal team tried desperately to make nice and avoid a lengthy jail sentence. The two sides went back and forth and back and forth until Capone was like, you know what, guys? Don't worry about it. I'll pay the taxes I owe. <laughs> we'll set up a little payment plan. Bada bing, bada boom, done. And I'll plead guilty, too, so they'll get my guilt and my money and I'll get my freedom. Al Capone went to court to make his plea official in front of Judge Wilkerson in June of 1931. The judge was like, um, I'm sorry, this isn't exactly how this works here, okay? Regular people don't just say, okay, I'll do the right thing now and we'll pretend this never happened. So he told everyone to get the hell out of his courtroom and he needed to do some thinking. Everyone was called back the following month on July 30th where the judge proclaimed, quote, it is time for somebody to impress upon the defendant that it is utterly impossible to bargain with a federal court. Basically, You're the guilty party here, sir. You don't get to decide your punishment. So you're going to trial, and the next time I see you, you'll be in front of a jury. Thank you. Goodbye. Shortly before the trial against Al Capone started, Capone's gang were already doing what they did best, making deals. They were passing out $1,000 bills to prospective jurors, amongst other people in power, making all the bribes, even handing out fight tickets. And handing out punches, too. Fight tickets. It's hilarious. (laughs) You can just tell where people's priorities were back then. The jury hadn't been finalized, but the DOJ were horrified that they may go to trial with a fixed jury. Somehow, and I honestly don't really understand this at all, but somehow Capone's men had gotten a hold of the list of prospective jurors, I guess. And when the DOJ approached the judge, he was like, well, let me see the names you got because I haven't seen any juror list, but I'll let you know when I do. And what do you know? When the judge did receive the list of jurors, they matched the DOJ's list that had been given to them as being potentially rigged by Capone's team. So they had an informant who, crazy, because this guy actually turned on the mob and was like working both sides. And he presented the DOJ with this list being like, hey, these are all the people that have been paid and they're going to be jury. They're going to be jury members. And the judge is like, how can they know that? We we haven't even gotten a list of jurors yet. But when he got the list of jurors, they matched the list. And I honestly have no idea. They obviously had authority members still working for them, you know? 
who fixed the whole thing. So he was like, yeah, they definitely match up, but don't worry, I got this. When the trial kicked off on October 5th, 1931, Judge Wilkerson held true to his word. He did have this. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why wow. I wrote that. It's <laughs> a great tagline. I really thought I was doing something with that. <laughs> I even put did in capital letters. He called the bailiff up and he said, hey, there's another judge down the hall about to start his own trial. Switch him. Take my entire jury. This is in the movie. In The Untouchables? I think so. Take my entire jury down there and swap them for his. Bring me that jury and let's get this trial started. Smart. The trial largely focused on Capone's alleged tax evasion, which, let's be real, was well-founded. Well-founded. Well-founded because they had proof he hadn't filed any taxes between 1924 and 1929. The prosecution had solid proof of all of his underground dealings with plenty of witnesses to also attest to his lavish lifestyle. Obviously to prove that he was making a whole lot of cash, yet somehow not filing any taxes that would match up with someone who had jobs that would pay them a whole lot of cash. The defense really tried to push the idea that this whole case was just a front to put Al Capone away once and for all. But the evidence against him was incredible. U.S. Attorney George Johnson ended the trial by telling the jury, quote, This is a case that future generations will remember. They will remember it because it will establish whether a man can so conduct his affairs that he is above the government and above the law, end quote. Thirteen days of trial ended when the jury was dismissed to deliberate on October 18th, and they returned only eight hours later with a verdict of guilty. News reporters present began running out of the courtroom to report the news. Imagine trying to break news in the 1930s. You had to run to a payphone. Yes. And then you had to wait in line. I was also listening to another, <laughs> uh, I was listening to a podcast to about another, a guy who would put up signs that said out of order on the payphones. Because he wanted to be the Hell first yeah. one to report the news. Less than a week later, Judge Wilkerson sentenced Al Capone to 11 years, the longest anyone had ever been sentenced to prison for, tax evasion especially. And reports state that Al Capone yelled that he would fight the charges as he was led away in cuffs. His fights, however, led nowhere because all of his appeals were denied and Capone began his lengthy sentence in Atlanta. He did not make the best name for himself because he worked the system and got hella special treatment. A fellow inmate would later claim that he had silk underwear and custom suits and he got extra time on the tennis courts. Atlanta officials would deny all of that, obviously. But the real people in charge were not having it and sick of his shit, they made the decision to transfer Al Capone to the maximum security Alcatraz Penitentiary, where despite his celeb status, he was known simply as Prisoner 85. Have you ever been to Alcatraz? No, but I've seen it. I've been to Alcatraz. You have? Yeah. Alcatraz blows my mind. I love stories about Alcatraz. We should go next time in San Francisco. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. Alcatraz is my uh, zombie apocalypse hideout. If there was a zombie apocalypse, I would sail up the coast to Alcatraz. It's big enough. You could grow your own vegetables, get some chickens, whatever. Mm -hmm. No zombies. Okay, I'm down. Let's do that. Now, at Alcatraz, there were zero perks for Scarface, but he did avoid beatings from the wardens, and he never had to serve any time in the dungeon. So, baby perk. They were like, dude, it's Capone. We're not going to beat his ass. At Alcatraz, something really seemed to change in Capone, too. He became an avid reader, and his choice of material included self-improvement, English, gardening, and music. Aside from novels, he also subscribed to nearly 90 newspapers and magazines. Maybe for the first time in his life, Capone saw life for what it could be away from the mob. Lots of fucking reading. Yeah, he read so much. <laughs> or maybe his seeming, like, changes in priorities were influenced by his declining health. 
Shortly after Capone began serving the rest of his sentence at Alcatraz, it was revealed that Al Capone was suffering from long-term syphilis. Dr. Sinead about to enter the chat here, folks. So let's talk syphilis, shall we? It's a sexually transmitted bacterial infection that develops in stages, primary, secondary, latent, and tertiary. It's believed that he was first diagnosed with the infection, along with gonorrhea, according to some sources, after being booked into jail in Atlanta. But it wasn't until Alcatraz that doctors had determined that his infection was severe. In its first or primary stage, syphilis presents itself as a painless sore called a shanker. I believe, or a shanker. It's these sores that are contagious, and they are extremely contagious. In the secondary stage, the infection manifests as a rash. Often, the shanker will kind of just morph into that secondary stage rash. Not every time, but sometimes. But because both of these stages can look like so many other things, like a rash, syphilis can totally go unnoticed and untreated. The latent or hidden stage of syphilis has no symptoms and can last for years, and by the time syphilis develops into its final tertiary stage, up to 30 years may have passed since the person was first exposed then and thus infected. Falls off. Yeah, horrible things happen. Up to 30 years, though. Isn't that insane? Yeah. Now, only like 15 to 30 percent of people will actually see their infection develop into the tertiary stage. And it is extremely dangerous because syphilis, because syphilis can affect and completely wreak havoc on one of multiple systems in the body. By the time Capone received his diagnosis, his syphilis, it appears, was already in the tertiary stage or approaching it at least, not sure, but it would make sense since the third or latent stage is called the hidden stage because there are no symptoms, so not sure why you would be seeing a doctor unless you were experiencing symptoms, you know? It's believed that Capone had contracted the infection while working in the brothels when he first arrived in Chicago. So years had passed, and that would also make sense. And it might not have been Capone who sought treatment either, because his syphilis had developed into neurosyphilis, or syphilis of the brain. And its effects on Al definitely did not go unnoticed by both jail officials and inmates. To put it in mob terms, Capone had gone soft, just in a very different and actually pretty sad way because he was kind of off his rocker as a result of his brain being pounded to mush by the infection. While at Alcatraz, he begged the officials to let him start a band. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> and after like a year of him asking, he asked like every day. Um, they finally relented and he started his band. He played the banjo and he wrote a few songs, one of which he called Madonna Mia. And it was a tribute to his wife, May. Like, I love you, May. I'm sorry I got syphilis <laughs> and put you at risk. <laughs> but I, you didn't get it. So that's good. Love you. However, by 1938, Capone was so ill that he spent most of his time in the hospital ward, completely confused as to what the hell was going on around him, until he was finally transferred to Terminal Island, another depressing astral, before ultimately being released due to his failing health. He died months later at his Palm Island estate in Florida, surrounded by his family. Al Capone was only 48 years old at the time of his death. Yeah, it's crazy. That really, like... Turned on a dime. It turned so fast. Right. And it, he he had the neurosyphilis had caused like dementia. So like there was no real end for him. Like he just kind of dissipated and then he had a stroke and he died. Isn't that wild? But yeah. it was so fast. It's a movie about that too. About his syphilis and about his death. He, yeah, it's like set. It might be Tom Hardy as Al Capone. Yes, yes. He's in Florida. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Frank Nitti, Al Capone's enforcer, nicknamed 
the enforcer, took over the outfit after Capone went to prison. Today, the Chicago outfit is in its decline. Salvatore De Laurentiis, in his 80s, is believed to be the leader of the criminal empire that once ruled the gang world. So they still have a leader. They're still active. They're just not as active anymore. Whatever happened, the guy that cut Galuccio? Yeah. Oh, no, actually, we never talked about that guy. Yeah. Frank Galuccio ended up, I believe, working for Capone somehow, like somehow later on. Because he owed him, he owed. Yeah, there were like, there was a bunch of articles that were like, it's believed that they actually became friends. He started working for him. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> By that time, he owed him $50 billion Capone's in interest. Like, hey, remember Yale who was keeping you alive? I killed him. You no longer owe him money. Right. Now you work for me. Right. Like there's so much to his story and all of these things. And then all of a sudden the story just ends before you feel like it's over, you know? Yeah, it's like Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> it is like Jesus. <laughs> except way worse. Yeah, like it just. Or Jimi Hendrix. It feels like the story is just beginning in he a just, way. He did a lot, you know, he did a lot. And then he got arrested for some bullshit ticky tack tax evasion shit. And then that coincided with him getting really sick. Yeah. Like, that's what's crazy. Torrio also came back and ended up working for Capone. By the time Torrio came back to Chicago, no, he was like, not, he wasn't going to be like, it's still mine. I'm taking it back. He was like, whoa, you are a different breed, my friend. And he, he ended up working He for, came back from Italy and was like, yeah. hey, I saw the He's family. Like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, whoa, I heard that, uh, I heard that. You are like the ruler of all. I can I can come back to this. Anyways, thank you guys so much for your patience and for tuning in. This is a long one, um, but we will be back <laughs> later this week with a little mini mini episode. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for tuning Hooked in. Thanks for hitting radio. play on the podcast <laughs> playlist of yours. Um, of course, leave reviews, write comments, all that good stuff. You can email let me tell you a story pod at gmail.com for case suggestions. At the end of the week, I'll do a little bonus little mini episode on the Everly Club, that club I told you about that was run by those two sisters. Um, because a lot of weird shit happened there. There's a lot of cool shit that happened during this time, aside from the mob, you know, but like mob adjacent. All right, guys, we will see you. Or I mean, talk to you. You will hear us in a few days. Bye. Oh, okay, bye. <laughs>